Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Thorn in Your Side. It is part two of our holiday series. Last episode we unpacked Adventure Time. We worked really, really hard to try to apply the illusions of Adventure Time to real life. Namely, the recent shenanigans that are happening in US politics What we're going to try to do this time around is something similar in that we're going to explore a documentary series that season one happened last year. Season two is expected to happen later this year. But as I've mentioned a couple of times in previous episodes, because um, I'm a bit of a fan on this, that this really should have been something that should have set the internet afire if it wasn't for things like the pandemic and uh, neo-fascist presidents. But it is what it is in the world. We'll do our best in this episode to give this documentary the kudos it deserves. With me once again, I've got John Maguire, or as people know him on the internet, John. Hey, John. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So before we get into it, John, um, yeah, you've, uh, you, you've been giving me a bit of tire pumping regarding the last episode. The last episode being the first episode of the year, and therefore I did some New Year's spring cleaning regarding the production of the episodes. Float your boat, huh? Yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed the production values. I was saying to you earlier, I uh, listened to the podcast on the uh, on the way on a, a train, and yeah, it just sounded really good. I really loved it. Yeah, no, oh, I um, I've, I've added a new intro, and um, once again, thank you very much, Simon Frew and Kate Burkett, for your collaborative contributions to the making of the intro, and also I've added in a few odds and sods and i might try to continue that i might put some footage of the vow in i did do some research in this stuff and apparently like if i do sound bites for educative purposes then it's okay and i don't know john uh, we're educating people aren't we well you know i'm i'm an academic i'm a sociologist uh you know uh, it's, it's my job yeah hey, yeah claiming on tax as well <laughs> 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 you can wear that hat, John, and you can also um, basically game the the economic system to um, to what you do on this podcast as well. So um, good on you. Uh, and, and and certainly with this topic, gaming and scamming are, are definitely definitely right up that alley. Ah, yes, yes, nice segue. What we're going to start talking about is this documentary series that I've been alluding to. It's 
called The Vow. It's something I watched last year, I think somewhere in the second half of last year. So before I start going into it, I might just offer a trigger warning to anyone who's listening who has survived sexual assault, sexual abuse. I just wanted to put it there in the event that we might discuss some content of the documentary series that might be particularly triggering towards some of the events that you've survived previously. I first come across The Vow after hearing news articles of an actor from the show Smallville. People aren't very familiar with that show. That's basically the prequel for Superman. Went for about a decade or so. But anyway, one of the actors in that show, Alison Mack, in the last, I think a couple of years ago or leading into the start of last year, there were a few reports of her doing some dodgy things. And I'm thinking, whoa. It's a shocking claim about an actress from the TV show Smallville. Allison Mack played a high school student in Smallville who had a crush on young Superman. It's now being revealed that Allison Mack is a follower of a notorious guru who has been accused of having his initials branded on some of his followers like cattle. You know, nothing out of the ordinary for Hollywood types, but I remember Allison from Smallville and um, I did like her performance. You know, the girl next door type, kind of watching the show and thinking, oh, yeah, wish I knew her in real life. She'd be nice. Talk about stuff, confide in stuff, have a few deep and meaningfuls. But after hearing what has happened to her in the last couple of years, maybe not so much now. Uh, So then I kind of looked into a bit more. Then I came across this HBO series called The Vow, which really got into the issues a bit more. Uh, the organization that Alison Mack was a part of. And then it introduced me to um, this fellow called Keith Ranieri, who, through my own assessment after watching the documentary series and um, looking at other bits and bobs of media that, that cover the story, he pretty much presents to me now as a 21st century version of Charles Manson in the sense that if you can remember how Charles Manson did his deeds, he, he wasn't necessarily directly involved. He always had other people do his bidding. He was able to brainwash them in a way to get them to do his bidding. I feel like this Keith Ranieri person is, is not too dissimilar. Definitely has the same similar hairstyle and facial hair. Yeah, so I'll bring in John on this and um, I think we can go into the the particulars of the documentary and maybe we can talk about the ramifications of what happens when one joins such an organisation as did Alison Mack and why someone like Alison ended up as she is now waiting for sentencing for what could potentially be a very big jail sentence for her. So over to you, John. Did you encounter this under similar circumstances? And also, what were your initial thoughts about all of this stuff when I also peddled the documentary series onto you? Yeah, so uh, I... I didn't know when you said Nexium, which is the organization, it's a documentary about this thing called Nexium. I didn't know what you were talking about. And it's not an acronym. Like it presents as an acronym. It doesn't stand for anything. That's so cool. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> so we're going to find out there's lots of not standing for anything uh, in this story. <laughs> but you you mentioned it to me and I had no idea. And I think you, you made the point to me that, hey, maybe if it wasn't for COVID, this would be a bigger story. But then when you said Alison Mack from Smallville, I was like, oh, yeah, that was the sex cult, wasn't it? So I, I had no idea about the documentary until you put me onto it. Uh, and basically, once you put me onto it, I sat there and and I thought, all right, I'll, I'll watch it. Um, it's nine episodes. It's about an hour in episodes and nine hours. I pretty much watched it all in three days. Um, ah, so you ended up binge watching it. Yeah, couldn't stop. Couldn't stop. I mean, it, it's really well put together and it's an incredibly, it's, it's a very interesting story of what happened so yeah I, I thought wow this is amazing and I'm not really like there was a stage where I was interested in in um cults and and this sort of stuff and and Jonestown and things like that and I'll but it's something that um you know I used to when I I, I worked in the center for, for religious studies at Western Sydney University I did a little bit of work around uh, researching religions and doing some stuff around that. And there was a few people there that looked at new religious movements or new spiritual movements and stuff. So I was interested from it, from that perspective, but this is not something that I, I had really got into for quite a few years. So it was uh, incredibly interesting. And I've, I've got to say, like, I've got lots, lots to talk about in regards to this. Um, yeah, it blew me away. Like this was, this is an outstanding documentary really enjoyed it. Nexium is a methodology that allows people to optimize their behavior. Nexium is the umbrella company. Keith was the founder. He was a legend. Our main belief is to have people experience more joy in their lives. It's a worldwide organization. When conventional solutions don't work, maybe the unconventional way of thinking does. So maybe to get a bit more into the particulars of this documentary, it largely involves two, how would you call them, escapees of the organisation, two deprogrammed former participants. One is an actress, uh, Sarah Edmondson, I think her name is. The other dude is famous for doing a particular... I think it was a documentary and a book, a companion book called What the Bleak Do We Know, which really went into the DNMs about the creation of the universe and, and whatnot. Some dude from South Africa, uh, but when you listen to him, you don't really know because he's done a Charlize Theron and basically gotten rid of the, the accent because he's been in America for a while. And it's like, oh, OK, well, yeah, South Africans are weird. So let's make them sound American. Um, yeah, not racist at all, Michael. Um, that guy. Uh, That's Mark, Mark Vincenti? Yes, thank you, John. I was trying to buy some time for, for me to get uh, an idea of what the name was. Mark Vincenti. So the <laughs> both of them were the, took on the lion's share of this documentary series, and I, I think they, they pretty much spearheaded the production of it because there's actually a lot of very intimate footage within the documentary. And by intimate, I, th I refer to um, actual footage of meetings and sessions that were going on within the organization phone calls uh with keith ranieri and mark big speeches that keith did or lectures or um 
you know, indoctrinary sessions. <laughs> yeah, it's probably it's probably worth noting that, that that is actually a really good point because Mark being the documentarian himself. Yeah. Even though I believe the documentary isn't I don't know if it's I didn't think it was his. I think but obviously when he came into to Nexium, he obviously came in as a successful documentary maker. And then that's what he brought to the table there in the organization. And so he was, you know, there's a, a story about how they're supposed to be making this movie. They're supposed to be making this documentary. And he basically spends seven years recording all these things with, with Keith, recording all these um, events and stuff, all for, you know, the organization, this documentary that and within the organization, which obviously never happens. Mm. It's, it's this ongoing thing. So he has, yeah, he has all these, the, these recordings that he's got clearly. They also seem to be because, you know, Keith Raniere, the, the whole thing within Nexium is, is he's a genius. And so people record their conversations with him to get his insight. So, and then the organization itself records its own material for using in its, in its sessions. So early on, when we see Mark and Sarah going to their first ESP session, we see that actually there's a videotape there and they put on and it has, um, Nancy, the, the co-founder, you know, teaching them lessons and so forth. So there's all this recorded material, which, which they do a great job of letting you in, mm. in the organization, in the, in the early stages. So as you were saying earlier, like the first episode, it, it's not particularly a negative impression of the organization you get to see from the beginning. I remember meeting Nancy for the first time and it was pretty cool because, you know, I'd gone from like judging her to thinking she was a rock star. It's a very subtle, gradual unpacking as the episodes progress. So nine episode series. The first one or two episodes, you, you kind of watch it and you're thinking, oh, this is quite innocuous. You're actually watching it and it's like, oh, well, it's a bit geeky. It's a bit white bread. Lots of weird ass <laughs> concepts. Can I say, <laughs> I was watching it and uh, and I might talk about this in the future a little bit, but, you know, I was watching in the executive success programs. Here they are, you know, they get people in there and they, you know, how can you be better at what you do? How can you be more successful? And and I've got to say, man, like I see ads for that stuff all the time. And, you know, occasionally I pick up a self-help book. Like that's, that's sometimes my shit. Like I, I would be susceptible to to some of the things that they were talking about in the beginning, <laughs> where, where, which is where one of the things that, I think is important in this is, you know, seeing Sarah and Mark and seeing why they get into this and Bonnie as well, and actually understanding that that their choice to get involved in this organization or their path to get involved in this organization, it isn't, you know, that they were desperate or they were weak or anything like it. It's understandable why they would be interested in making themselves better. It, it's, it's, I think it's, it's okay to, to, for them to want to find more meaning in their lives. Yeah, so I think there was a bit of a mutual benefit there from on the side of Keith and on the side of um, the likes of Mark and Susan with joining together into this organisation on Mark and Susan's side. Oh, man. I feel like it's a Sarah instead of a Susan. It is a Sarah. It's, it's a Sarah. Sarah. We can Mark. edit that out. How about new? That's okay. Mark and Sarah, so they're successful people in their own right, in the sense that 
you know, they, they've scratched the, the surface of celebdom here and there. They've come up with material that, that reaches out to people. They seem pretty likeable folks in their own right. But I suppose personally, and this is how the, the first couple of episodes particularly play out, they, I think they both have a sense of vulnerability in that they're at a, a crossroads in terms of where they're going, how to further build upon what they've done to that time. So this is where an organisation like this would be a, a good set for them at its base. Then you refer to Keith Ranieri, who... As the documentary series progresses, you do realise that his intentions are, are quite um, self-indulgent, sociopathic, but at its face, you buy into how he, he really wants to present to the world as a high-level doyen um, guru, genius, um, the, the next big world prophet type stuff. He grows his hair and he cuts his facial hair and grooms himself to actually present himself as that. But as the series progresses, you, you realise that there are some ulterior motives to, to why he does what he does. And the immediate ones is the actual setup, uh, the logistical setup of Nexium. You find that, that to fund it, he approached the children of a liquor magnet, Seagram's. So that was a, a huge heap of revenue to start off with to seed the project of Nexium. And also there was some very quite strategic approaches to certain peoples to recruit into the organisation as students. And that's where he reached out or he was able to attract people like Sarah and Mark, who, as you see in the first episode, they, they rock up to the initial recruitment sessions. Uh, they, they themselves think, well, this is a bit geeky, but then after the, a little while it grows on them, I think it probably doesn't hurt the fact that you've got the higher-ups in the organisation immediately seeking them out and pumping their tyres and making them feel valued. And also, as you see later on into the series, the recruitment of types like Alison Mack is, a, a well, relatively speaking, a well-established celebrity. I mean, she's definitely known amongst the geekdom. And also um, a lady called India Oxenberg, who is the daughter of, um, and I think the Boomer listeners out here will remember the TV show Dynasty. Just In a shout out to our Boomer listeners. Yeah. Hi. Um, you know, you're our allies. Um, just don't complain so much. Haha. <laughs> um, India being the daughter of Catherine Oxenberg, a star of the TV series Dynasty. And as you can see into the documentary, um, there's definite clear and apparent efforts to try to attract India into the organization. So very cynical, strategic way of trying to give the organization status and value. To progress within the organisation, it does cost them mint as well. So I, I don't think it's to the levels of Scientology, but it's still a bit of a packet. Um, so you're either going to be 
a, a white upper middle class type who who's looking for a sense of meaning and purpose, or you're going to be a desperate waspy person who's happy to throw as much money and get into as much debt and create a virtual mortgage in order to take part in the program. I think there's the with, with that there's some interesting stuff where we meet Mark's wife. Bonnie, who is an Australian, like let's let's have an Australian connection. Oh, and um, Geek Deep Cut, she was Owen Lars's wife in the Star Wars prequel. Exactly, exactly. Um, and she she's actually the first one that from the the people we meet that that realizes something's not right. And she has an interesting thing in that she talks about obviously she didn't have that much money, oh. uh, but she had her labor. And so what they were doing, and she would talk about, you know, that she would have to donate her time to the sing group they had started to promote, you know, the ideas of Nexium out there. And she would have to, you know, go and do all these courses, go and do all these trainings and stuff. She talked about that the whole organization was resting on the exploited labor of people like her. And also her cashing in a celeb currency as well. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, um, you know, when we see, you know, Alison Mack and there's actually some other actors from Battlestar Galactica as well. Like there clearly was an agenda to try and get as many high profile people in there. And it's it's interesting because you're when we meet Mark and Sarah and then later we meet Bonnie who marries Mark and, and Nippy who marries Sarah. So there's two couples. They're all people who are successful. They're all people who have been, you know, doing pretty well. But when they come on to to Nexium and they go to that ESP, that executive success program. Mm. They're all people in transition. They're all people going, okay, what next? What's that next um, thing I want to do? Or, or, you know, in Mark's case, is there something more? Where am I going to go uh, now? And it's interesting because when we look into criminal justice and we look into to youth justice and youth offending, one of the things that has been really important with crime prevention has been this idea of when young people are at transition points. So there's these key transition points in our lives when we leave the home and we go to preschool, when we go from preschool to primary school, when we go to primary school to high school, and then when we finish high school and go into work and, and the university, right? And there's a lot of research around if you support people at these transition points, like that's where people are vulnerable to get involved in crime and get involved in deviant behaviour. If you support them in these transition points, you can make sure that they, they make the right decisions. And it's interesting here that we hear them talking about they're in these transition points. That's when they're susceptible to these new ideas, to these things. Yeah, the power of the cult of the individual and the, the will of the individual. It's no coincidence. In fact, I think there was a very deliberate construction there by Keith Ranieri with the setup of the organisation. He, he lends himself to a, an amount of Ayn Rand's philosophy with the, the formation of the, the Nexium program or the ESM schedule that he introduces. That's the other thing about this Nexium thing as well, John, is that it's all very bureaucratic, highly structured and... Bureaucratic in the sense that there's definitely very apparent and overt structures of power and and delegation. And through that, you see the formation of different groups and subgroups. And I think that it's probably important to understand. It's probably why it needed to be drawn out a bit, because if you had it all explained at the start of it, I think it'd kind of overwhelm a lot of people in terms of the intensive layeredness of the the actual organisation. 
it's important to to understand that these guys don't go to a meeting and they go, hi guys, welcome. Would you like to join a sex cult? Like they 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 walk into this meeting looking for answers in their lives, looking to get in. I mean, the the, the first sessions that they do are pretty full on. Like it were twelve hour mm. sessions, you know that I think went on for like a week or something. Like that's what the first training program that they invite you to. Yeah. You can imagine how tired and, and broken down you get. And and they do that thing, what was it called? That um uh like exploration of meaning, you know, breaking breaking you down to your trying to work out why why do you react this way to this has got something to do with your childhood. So we go through and, you know, try and find what are the barriers, what's stopping you from being success. Mm. And it's very interesting that they make that a, a very technical process, uh, calling it EM. They, they, oh, they, trademarked. They, they, <laughs> they've, they've got patents on it. So, yeah, yeah. In fact, they when people leave the organisation, part of the way they justify chasing them is saying, you, you've got our tech. They call it our their tech, their process of, of doing these EMs. Well, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit later, but that was one of the big reasons why there was a lot of initial reluctance to speak out against the organisation because they'd go after them like a pack of wolves in a legal sense. It wasn't until I think there was some real means of organising from deprogrammed, escaped people, members of the organisation where you see stuff like this documentary and then suddenly all these news reports about the weird activities of, of Alison Mack and other members. But the other thing here, John, as well, is that there's still members of the organisation that still exist and they're still in support of the continuation of Nexium and still buying into that presentation of Keith Ranieri as the, the second coming of, of Jeebus. I'm no missionary. I don't even believe in Jeebus. You also, um, yeah, you also canoodled with the Dalai Lama at one point in that documentary series, so that was no accident. But anyway, uh, I digress. But I think the people that are still within Nexium, there's there's people that will experience it in one side, over in one corner, and they might be quite far removed from the sex culty stuff, as we'll look to get into. As you'll find in the documentary series, that a lot of people that, that really start to become conscious of what's going on and really seeing the organisation holistically, those ones are the ones that really start to flee and try to get away from the organisation and then whilst also doing so, running the risk of any potential punishment and persecution. We do hear examples in the documentary of, of former people that really tried to speak out against Nexium, but they got shut down through the courts, got their name dragged through the mud through a very industrial complex of lawyering by Nexium. And when you see them in the documentary, they're actually broken, isolated people themselves in many ways. It's actually produced quite an emotional response for me in those points where you actually see them being enabled because of the efforts of these recent escapees. I might as well just call them escapees for the rest of this episode because it feels accurate. Where they all start to bandy together and it's like, well, here's my experience and here's my experience of what happened and this is my plan and how we can move forward and this is who we can bring in. And so a real sense of organizing and to really get around what stopped other people previously from from getting to Nexium. 
Um, is that something that, that you really kind of noticed there, John? Just the fact that there was that idea of if you want to try to escape, they'll try to drag you back in. And if you don't go back in, there's really that organization-based punitive activity that, that you risk copying as a consequence. Yeah, it's interesting, the documentary, because we meet those four escapees who are leaving the organisation almost. We're seeing it in real time in the documentary. And then later in there, we find out, yeah, these other escapees who escaped years earlier and how they've been crushed. And they turn out to be Keith Raniere's ethnics lovers. So they seem to be, in some ways, before this, this sex cult gets set up, so in the early days when his former partners leave, they get harassed because this is a company, this is a corporation. So, and, and they had positions in the corporation. So they have, you know, intellectual agreements and intellectual property and they chase them down on those bases. Like there was uh, one of them who said that they owed money, that Nixium owed the money and they used that to go through the courts and then they were employing all these lawyers. So it was, and by the looks of it too, because the escapees, our four escapees who are leaving in real time, talk about that they know that people were getting chased out of the organization so it certainly was interesting because when our escapees decide that enough is enough and, and they they decide nexium's a bad organization they're, they're really fearful they're really fearful that keith is going to come after them and that things could happen to them and even though i think in the documentary their fear feels it's really it's really raw and real like you see mark and bonnie basically go into hiding during the documentary, basically hiding and only feel comfortable enough to go back to their old homes when they find out that Keith has, has run away to Mexico. This yeah. is getting right near the end. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be a couple of aspects there of being a member of a high control organisation in the sense that, I mean, you can get a sense of value, but I think what else underpins it is also a sense of discipline as well, where you don't risk saying or doing the wrong thing because there is very deliberate ways that have been presented to members on what the consequences could be if you run counter to the organization line. So as the documentary progresses, John, we get a sense of what the organization's about, how it presents itself, how Keith Ranieri presents it, the types of people that are attracted or recruited into the organization, how the organization starts to grow and develop and get publicity and success and a following. Could I add one thing there that I think is worth noting too is that People always ask, well, why do people join these ridiculous cults? Like it's clear that the the people we're following through find success in the organisation. Mm. So Mark finds success as, you know, being the basically documentarian of the organisation. Um, you know, he lives a good life. He meets Bonnie. They fall in love. Like he's living a good life. Sarah, who's the actress, finds that actually she has a great talent for marketing and recruitment and becomes the greatest recruiter at Nexium. So in this organization, they all find really strong positions and strong places in the organization, which I think is important to mention. And, and there was that gentleman that had Tourette's, who it seems that the EM and, and you know, I imagine sitting down there and talking about your problems and your issues. I'm sure it, it, it has some positive aspects. So a lot of people talk about that, that it was, it was the organization was quite successful in that way. 
but obviously, as I think you're about to get into when we talk about, is it high control? Yeah, so I mean, there is benefits of it in terms of the what you've just mentioned there with the case study of the guy who joined the organization who suffered from Tourette's and through an amount of intense support and dialogue and interactivity with him, he was able to untangle the Tourette's presentation. And to this day, I do understand that this fellow is a, a, an ongoing member of the Nexium organization to the point where he is a bit of an activist now where they're doing this dance for freedom crap outside of the place where keith was was in remand that's an important point because we're going to get into the sex cult aspect but that's a small part right not not the whole organization is involved in that where you might talk about the whole organization be structured to to facilitate it Mm. but there's all these other people like mark and and bonnie nippy and, and these other people who are on the periphery of that, they're not involved in it. And they wouldn't find out about it if it, if it wasn't for a couple of, of incidences that, that occur. So there's all these people in the organisation who don't see it. Although, as we see in the documentary, after reflection, they start to see this high control stuff that, that you want to talk about. Yeah, the example there is between Bonnie and Mark who were a couple. And at one point it was definitely risking a a breakdown of their relationship where Bonnie was seeing what was going on. She was trying her best to inform Mark of what was happening. Mark wouldn't buy into it, but he was buying into his idolization of Keith Ranieri. And it took a little while for him to come around. And I think the key of it is, is that if you see what's happening across the organization rather than what's happening in one particular segment i think that's what leads to the initial stages of the the deprogramming and the actual the, the true actualization of the the people that participate within the organization so this sex cult john so as i was mentioning before the, all these different byzantine subgroups formed within Nexium and one of them is a group called DOS and that actually unlike Nexium that actually does stand for something something of sisterhood I can't remember what the D stands for but uh DOS is an acronym for the Latin phrase Dominus Obsequia Sororia which loosely translates to master over the slave women in DOS you were called a slave and you served under your master I think they just like calling it DOS because it sounds like an old computer operating system. Again, the technical imagery. How this group came about, Keith would like to say in the first instance that it was done in a very organic manner, that it was actually members-driven where a bunch of women came up to him and said, look, Keith, we want to explore our femininity and um, be able to find the enabling properties of that and... How do we augment that by referring it to the the Nexium program? The product of that was DOS, which as the documentary proceeds, you actually find that it cranks it up a notch in terms of the high control qualities. And what's most typical of it is a very hyper-rigid hierarchy that's epitomized with, and this is literally what happens, the development of a master and slave relationship. You could be a bit more generous and say that it's a mentor-protege relationship, but as it goes on, you find that um, it actually is a bit more of a classical master and slave relationship where it gets to the point where 
slaves are actually asking their masters for permission to consume more calories in the day. So this is where the abuse really kicks in, in that you're seeing a lot of participants within DOS trying to succeed through rigid dietary programs because the bullshit explanation is that you need to have quantifiable data in order to show signs of success. What better way to do that than calorie counting? Um, consume so many calories in a day, you're succeeding, and so forth. And you really see that through the likes of Alison Mack, who as time progresses, you see that she becomes quite gaunt and quite erratic, as one is wont to do when you you're basically starving yourself. So you see that through the master and slave relationship. One other thing that you notice there is that the, there's a progression to the point of people having this symbol carved into their flesh, done with a, a cauterizing pen. It's actually vividly explained in the documentary series by Sarah when she encounters it. And I think the main reflection that she has is that she's actually quite, there's a real sense of dissonance disconnect where she's saying that when at the point where she's actually having the symbol burn into her flesh she's actually removed from the situation where she's just basically let everything happen and let the structure come into it and all of it will be right when in fact it's all very very wrong now the insidious thing about the cauterization of the flesh john with this symbolism is that it was actually presented to them as this uh new age symbology that will provide inspiration and a sense of solidarity within DOS. But as you look into it, uh, you actually find that, and this is where really first give me the real inclination that this guy is just a natural born sociopath, that this symbol is actually his initials. So he's carved through proxy He's had his initials carved into a whole bunch of female participants of his organization. So there's those two aspects. And then the third one, which um, really confirms the sex culty aspect of this, is that part of this schedule of being in DOS, in order to get your sense of enablement, is that you have to assert your sexuality. You have to assert your sexuality, and by doing that, you need to seduce Keith Ranieri. No, God! No, God, please, no! No! At that point of the documentary, that's where all bets are off, and that's where you think that this guy's a flaky, craving loon, and really, he needs to get everything that's coming to him. Would you agree, John? Definitely. I mean, the it's shocking, right? It's just so shocking. The branding is really, really confronting and really just disgusting uh, it goes back to that stuff I, I really hate this sort of new age bullshit where control your feelings so if someone does something to you you're responsible for how you feel about that so where sarah talks about and she's the first person we meet who gets branded and she talks about that her master says to her what you need to do is when you're getting branded is turn that pain into pleasure you are responsible for how you feel. And so it's that whole sort of, it doesn't matter what people do to you, it just matters how you react to it, how you take from that. I think it's important to understand, like you get to this point where you just go, my God, how could this happen? How could people do this? Intelligent, caring people do this to each other. And it really is an interesting thing, I think, 
with the way gender happens in this group, the gender division. You know, you have Keith Raniere, the people around him are often women in leadership positions. So he's seen as one of the good guys, you know. Like, look at all the women around him. He must be pro-women, pro-feminism. And, in fact, they have an organisation, Janus, which is, uh, you know, promoting feminism and female leadership and female empowerment. Mm. And then that that's all seems pretty nice, right? Mm. And then there's the, the men set up their organisation called the Society of Protectors with this very misogynistic idea. And we, we see Keith talk about that, that, you know, men don't respect women. He does this, this story where every man is wounded by when they're a child and a girl hits them and they go to hit the girl back because that's fairness. And then the their dad or someone holds them back and says, oh, no, you can't hit girls. And every man is wounded by that and we don't respect women. So they create this idea of society of protectors and gender division happens because what happens is the women in DOS are told that this is a secret club, like this is a secret organisation. In fact, I can't tell you about it until you give me collateral. Yeah. And that's where it becomes um, ultra, ultra high control. That is probably what seals the contract, I think, where in order to ensure your participation and compliance, they set up that, which is more or less extortion, an extortionary system where you need to present anything that would that would basically end up putting you in a compromised position. That's where you're seeing participants within DOS taking nude pictures of themselves providing stories of infidelity, all that sort of thing. And even to the point, and they had to constantly provide this, these examples to, to provide this in their terms, collateral. There was this terrible, terrible part where they were showing the text messages where, where someone was saying, your collateral for this week is due by Friday. And it sounded like someone saying, oh, don't forget to submit your timesheet. And it even got to the point where they had to make up stuff in order to make the deadline um, to, to submit your essay. Um, that was getting to the point of discriminating other people and other family members in, in a bad light as a consequence if they actually went through with the threat and presented the collateral publicly. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say was the pyramid scheme-ness of this. So there was this idea that there's a master and you're their slave and you have to do what they say and they would do things like text you and you would have to text within a certain period of time and respond that you were talking about the calories, asking if you could sleep, all these things, getting up at certain times. But you as a slave, your job was then to go and recruit your own slaves. Yeah. So it was a pyramid scheme, which is where it's it, it's interesting because obviously where this comes out in the documentary is, is Sarah's brought into this. And it's clear that she's recruited into DOS because she's a great recruiter. So in other words, she can go out there and get more women for Keith. That's clearly what the intent was. And plus it's also revealed that Keith has tried and failed various other pyramid schemes. In this instance, though, he was able to come up with just the right passive-aggressive insidious mix in order for it to work for him. that scene where the FBI needed to work with counterparts in Mexico to actually go into the compound where Keith had himself locked up with a few other women then he could be extradited back to the US for sentencing 
The suspected head of an alleged cult that reportedly branded female members now faces charges in the United States after he was arrested and extradited from Mexico. With him at the time, but not arrested, was a star of the TV show Smallville. So the way that those events unfolded is probably going to be movie stuff that will inevitably see dramatized. Actually, I think they, they might have done that at one point already. I think there's some miniseries being mandated about somewhere. Based on the shocking memoir Captive by Catherine Oxenberg. I will be a better person as a result of this. A ripped from the headlines feature. This is much more than just top secret. This is about learning to reach your maximum potential. This master. Escaping the Nexium cult, a mother's fight to save her daughter. Saturday, September 21st at 8 on Lifetime. It's been done. Anyway, might provide a link. But what we're seeing there is, particularly through the DOS experience, is for me, I get the imagery of waterboarding right, where you, this is torture over a long period of time, where you're strapped in and you're strapped in basically by a bunch of disciplinary measures, such as the collateral contracting, the master and slave relationship, the locking into a pyramid type scenario where the slave becomes the master by recruiting women under them and they start up the subjugation by themselves. Everything is embedded into this idea of that high control scenario where there is that unquestioned idea that the leadership and the authority on this is good, is trusted, is trustworthy, and their intentions are well placed. But unfortunately, you find that the shadow within all of that is quite large. So... To apply this to real life, John, we found ourselves really uh, having to, to try to describe all of this, which has been a, a very concerted effort. But I think there has to be a lot to be said about participating within a high control organization. I mean, there's, there's definitely a plethora of them out there. You can't tar them all under the, the same brush. I mean, for me personally, I've, I've had my encounters with. In my 20s, I was a member of Toastmasters. And there was benefits for me in doing that. I mean, it was highly structured, but it was all part of the quest for a person to become more confident in public speaking and being able to talk. As you might immediately surmise, Toastmasters is quite helpful for me to be able to do something like this, this podcasting project. But they, they didn't brand you with the T on your groin or anything, did they? Uh, no, no. When you say high control with Toastmasters, so with Nixium, we see that the high control is the hypercriticism. At any time you don't do something, okay, why don't you do that? Like, you know, what's in the way? Like this idea that you're the problem yeah. and you need to fix yourself. And there's the hypercriticism. With Toastmasters, what's the analogy there? What did you see that was similar? What makes you reflect on that as a high control? Well, there was a schedule there that you had to follow, a number of projects you had to complete. The Toastmaster meetings that you would attend are all highly structured. You have to talk for a certain period of time. They have a mechanism there that's actually um, used by conveners within the meeting that provide lights at certain points in time. So if you talk for five minutes, you get a warning, and then by the end of it, you get a light that 
tells you that your time's up. So you're really being conditioned into presenting a talk or delivering your words in a way that are going to be conducive, meaningful, and also done in a very economic way. It's that idea of just fronting up and doing stuff. I suppose this stuff does attract your perfectionist as you start to master it um, and you want to get better at it. Definitely came across the odd Toastmaster member that definitely had that inclination. But I think what you definitely find through a majority of the ones that sign up is that they just want to get a bit more confident in how they present themselves to the world and other people. There was one story of a politician ended up being a CEO of a media organization that I've previously worked with. He was with Toastmasters and he opted out once he felt confident enough. So, I mean, in many ways, it's like it's how long is a piece of string before you become a Toastmaster, you get all the different forms of accreditation and whatnot in the organization. But a lot of people just drop off once they realize, well, gotten everything out of it that I really need my own lot in life and that's eventually what happened to me within it but was very structured was a real challenge in the sense that it placed you out of your comfort zone but done compared to Nexium in probably a bit more of a legitimate and gentle way <laughs> and yeah definitely no cauterizing pens involved and no calorie control and no punishments and no. Yeah, I don't recall calling anyone master at any point, although it is concerning the fact that um, the organisation is called Toastmasters now that you think of it. That's the anarchist in you just coming out, which we might talk about as a good, oh, possibly maybe a bit good buffer against some of this shit. Uh, well, and- I, I did mention a couple of episodes ago that I have embraced anarchism as more of a way to enable me to provide a good critique against structure and the foibles of structure and power and authority within yeah. political organisations. I guess it's shining through, um, particularly in this episode. Certainly when, with with Nexium and that high control, like seeing that these are people who are interested in the organisation because they want to either A, improve themselves or B, make the world a better place. They see this guy, Keith Ranieri, as a guru. And it's interesting that you mentioned he was, you know, head of this pyramid scheme. He went from a businessman in the 90s he claims to be a scientist, you know, in Nexium and it's a, you know, scientific thing mm. to the flirting with the Dalai Lama and that whole guru thing. And so he has these aspects to, to him that all place him in a position of power and the claim that he has the highest IQ and all this stuff. I found it interesting when Bonnie talks about her interactions with him in the, when you talk about the high control, um, that he would literally call people at 2am or they would go to volleyball, which would go to like two in the morning or something. That part where he calls you up and says, it's it's 2am, come for a walk with me and let's talk. And, you know, they have these deep and meaningful conversations. But yeah, some of the punishments, you know, there, there's one really interesting point where Catherine Oxenberg is laughing, where she said, I remember where I visited you guys once and you guys had this bed on the floor, like a dog bed. But what was going on there? And then Bonnie says, yeah, that was my punishment. I was my penance. I was sleeping on the floor for a week. And Mark, who is a husband, basically breaks down and says, I can't believe I let my wife do that. I can't believe. So we're looking for analogies. What other analogies do you think in high control, like when you see an organisation like this that makes you a bit about your own life? Well, let's talk about the political organisations, John. So I've mentioned in the second 
episode of reflection that I did a couple of episodes ago, I think. Yeah, it was one just before our Adventure Time one, John, where I referred to the toxic left. And I think the more that we've talked about stuff in this episode, I think a lot of the elements of toxic left can be attributed to high control organization formation and behavior. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned three particular organizations. I guess after going through this episode, you would think that they definitely have very substantial elements of high control. Yeah, I won't go into naming the organizations again. Been there, done that. If anyone wants to know more, go back a couple of episodes. But the high control element where you're presented with ideology and doctrine, you're recruited into that, you buy into that, you must believe in it, you're appreciated by the way that you're able to recite, refer and interpret all the information that's presented within the ideology and the organization creed. And you also pay your penance within the organizations as well. And it's a bit of a running gag, I suppose, with the remainder of us lefties that are savvy to these organizations. Selling the newspapers, having the stalls at the the activist events where they're selling the the propaganda, um, that's where you're doing your shift as an organization member. And if you're not doing your shift, then you're not contributing to your organization. And if you're not doing that, then you better well have the, the right words to say in terms of saying the right things and what's the best political dialogue within the organization. So, um... So it's not so much the revolution. I think it's basically how one is able to get a sense of worth and purpose within the actual organization in question. And there's also that parallel, I think, there where we struck upon with Nexium there, John, that this stuff attracts middle-class types. Well, I suppose with Nexium's example, it's definitely upper-class, more privileged middle-class types that, um, that are having a crisis of conscience. But there's still that element of privilege within those organizations that I've referred to where they might be having a bit of a wondering about how the world works, what their place is within it, what they can do to change things. And then the organization presents itself as a very immediate and ready-made answer to all of that. So the amount of success is measured by how well one can abide to the rules and the norms of the organization how many papers does one sell so those are the parallels of high control but what do you think on that one john because well, you've I, definitely I, had the same, similar experiences to what i've had with that stuff well it's interesting because in nexium you do see that that same sort of stuff where you know sarah's success in nexium is she's a great recruiter right and that's where she grows and goes through the ranks and they have that scarf. We haven't even talked about the scarfs they wear around the neck with bands. Like it's almost like a black belt or a, or whatever. You, you, you the color of your scarf changes as you go up through the ranks and you get these bands. So yeah. And it's about not just following the doctrine of Keith Raniere, although that's really interesting because if you resist it, then there's something wrong with you, and we need to do an EM and get down into it. That there's a blockage there somewhere, something that happened in your childhood very psychoanalysis sort of stuff. But then there's this idea of suppressive. So people who will impede the progress, who might do it unconsciously because they, they just haven't dealt with their issue. And then there's Luciferians who are people who, you know, their intent 
is to destroy the organization. So inbuilt within this doctrine, anyone who is against it is a suppressive or a Luciferian. So it, it Renary builds into it. If you you're not with us, then you're you're against us. Well, that's what um, you see in immediate waiting um, that presents itself early on in the documentary. Where if you're not, yeah, some people just don't have the right stuff. They're seen as too negative. They're emotional composition just won't be compatible with nexium or you might not just have enough money and you're too poor but that's well actually that's where you can see the, the downfall right of nexium around this because i think the documentary presents it it's around bonnie because bonnie is the one that she is married to mark okay that connection is what's going to drag mark out mm. and she isn't wealthy she has her talent her singing talent and her acting talent and she keeps doing all the the things she's meant to do to rise to the organization, but she doesn't have the recruitment style of Sarah. You know, she's a bit different. And then she she's the one that works out she's being economically exploited by this organization, that she's giving all this labor away from for free and she's going nowhere. And that's where she starts to go, wait a minute. And the hypercriticism she sees, and she's the one that cracks and works it out. And then she pulls out mark and pulls out sarah like it's it's really interesting that she's that key component and it's one of those things right because when you talk about high control like when i look at this i feel i would be susceptible to the message of nexium right that we want to change the world we want to make the world a better place like that that's going to hit me in the right spot and i'm disillusioned with politics whether they're parliamentary or revolutionary like i just think I don't see much success there. I obviously gave up religion and and that idea of solving things a long, long time ago, <laughs> having a Catholic education. I would be susceptible to this, right? Except for when Bonnie talks about, oh, he calls you at 2 a.m. and says, go for a walk. Fuck that. <laughs> that, that. And my laziness, and I think in my life, <laughs> my laziness and my recalcitrance has probably saved me many times over that I'm sometimes just too lazy to go do that thing and therefore I avoid that trouble. And just sometimes I, I, I naturally say no. So like when I was thinking of this high control, right, the bit that freaked me out was the, the hyper-criticism. There's one part where Mark is showing Keith some footage he filmed for a documentary they're going to do, this, this documentary that's never going to be finished that Keith wants, wants Mark to do. And Keith is just ripping into it, just being hypercritical. And yeah. then Bonnie talks about this is what Keith would do, be hypercritical of you and, and, and it's all your fault if you're not doing it. And this made me think of what we've got in academia where we go to, to conferences where we write these papers and we send them into journals and they get reviewed or we go to a conference and we ask for feedback. And there's this idea in academia that you give me feedback, raw, unfiltered feedback. And that feedback I meant to take and then make my work better, right? It's about making our work better. And I've been to conferences where I see people do it really well and, and help the other person. And I seem to go to conferences where it's it's a, a power play. You know, it's about hierarchy. It's about ripping someone down. And occasionally I've seen that happen to like master's students and PhD students. And you can just see that in real time, someone giving up academia and that's always worried me about academia like it's something that that i just don't like and so in my own research when i've had supervisors i've been lucky had some good supervisors but i've had moments where i've really found the the criticism hard to take and so when i teach my students and i have to give them feedback on their essays mm. and so i explain to them the idea of feedback is i'm trying to make it better it has to come from a positive place i want to make your work better 
But I say to my students, your first reaction to my feedback should be, fuck you. Like it should be, I've done a really good thing and you're saying shit about it. Like it should be negative. Then later on, look at it and see if I've got anything positive to say. And if I do and you can see it, make your work better. If not, don't worry about it. Like let it go. And I think that's a key aspect that misses here because all the criticism they get from Keith, they just take on. So I don't think that academia is a cult, but it is certainly something that I worry about that we have this issue with feedback. I think it is natural that if someone says something negative to you, it's, it's natural to, to push against that. And sometimes that's a good thing. It's a good thing to push against someone criticizing you. There's a healthiness to that. Yeah, I think whether that's where it might expose this tension between the value of learning, enlightenment, and what brushes up against that is the idea of maintaining discipline and authority. I got a taste of that when I submitted my thesis to complete my master's last year, where one of the markers for me it was quite clear that, that a lot of what I said was very much a direct challenge to the values that she espoused as an academic and also a policy expert. Definitely came across in the marking comments. And then I returned fire and then escalated into a, a formal complaint against them. Didn't get very far, but uh, I'm hoping that the, the point was made in that as a student, there needs to be that agency to be able to really try to take what you've learnt and apply it into your own personal circumstances, which um, I attempted to do with that thesis and not have it being seen as a, as a personal affront by, <laughs> by someone who is around to market. So for me, that, that is a bit of a turnoff, I think, in terms of progressing within a, an academic sphere. There's value, but I think for me, unfortunately, John, I think it's going to be a, a situation where a lot of that's at arm's length, but it depends upon where your journey's at. And I suppose for me, wearing the, the political hat and seeing everything through the, the political lens, if we are going to organise as a class, then I think alliances need to be made with the, the comradely types still within the, the education sphere. But I think for education types, their side of the bargain is how inclusive, how available, how accessible are they going to maintain themselves to potential grander forms of political organising? My thoughts. That's going to be a very interesting topic for us to get into, I think, in, in other episodes. I, I think I'm, I'm actually really happy to hear that you pushed against it. Like I think the reaction to not, not all criticism, right? Some criticism, you know, is... You know, some criticism is valid, some isn't, but a natural reaction to say get stuffed is probably a healthy thing for all of us to have. To be able to put criticism within a context, to know certainly in academia when the criticism is really helpful and is to make your work better and when the criticism is actually more about the other person and about how they're challenged by the ideas or their sense of their power. I mean, it is funny in academia, the, the blind reviews and, and stuff where people review things and you never know who they are and they can say and do anything that they want. It certainly is an interesting thing watching when I watched Keith giving these critiques to people about either their behaviour or the product that they had made in, in Mark's case, you know, his filming and stuff, just and realising how that is a that was used to control them. Yeah, just at its bare bones, just raw gaslighting behaviour couched within this pseudo-intellectual environment that this real asshole propagated. 
We've waxed lyrical about the documentary series. I definitely red pilled John in it. <laughs> I yeah, I got fascinated. I got fascinated, and I think there's there's so much there. I mean, we talked about the class aspect. Yeah, you know, we've about you know that these were we're middle class and well to do people. We talked about the gender aspect, that the way feminism was used to propagate this cult, and the race aspect too. You know that. that like it's a very white documentary. The story itself is is so shocking and so troubling, and the documentary itself is just so well, well done. It really takes you on a journey, and it's one of those ones I think, as you watch it, like you're getting into it, you're getting into it. You're right, like really, um, but then at the end of it, it's not something that you watch and then you'll forget about in a couple of weeks. It is something that you watch and then things will pop back into your mind, you know, and you the way it's presented, it, it, it's really quite full on. And, of course, there's, it looks like there's going to be a second series of it, which I'm, I just, blows my mind that they could, what more could be said? With any luck with our um, pandemic circumstances, hopefully this is going to be a year where there is a, an amount of recovery from that stuff. And then maybe the internet can go back to a bit more of its normal operations although i'm very hesitant to use the term snapback because i don't think i'll go back to where it once was but hopefully it'll provide a bit more hype room for the second season of the vow which i think it is most deserved so we started off this episode with me saying that if it wasn't for the pandemic if it wasn't for neo-fascist orange colored politicians this would definitely have been something that would have broken the internet, but um, not so much. But hopefully maybe this year might be a chance to, to, to make up some lost ground for the series. But on a final note, I, I really recommend the documentary series. But then again, with the, the added warning for anyone out there that has experienced sexual assault, sexual abuse, and particularly even as well, possibly psychological abuse with the, the rampant gaslighting behavior that, that, that is definitely on show within the documentary. Just have a couple of thoughts before getting into it. I assume that, look, once the second series comes out, we're going to have to talk about it again. It's just, it's so shocking. It's, there's so much there. Yeah. Well, apparently they're going to actually interview some of the people that are waiting to be sentenced. So there's rumours that Keith Ranieri will actually be interviewed while he was waiting around to be in court and while he was in remand. I know that they'll at least be interviewing a few of the remaining true believers that still have the freedom and civility to be able to present themselves for interviews. But uh, yeah. And that would be interesting because the first season is really about as you've called them, the escapees, mm. those two couples and, and, and Catherine Oxenberg as well, her trying to get her daughter out. It's really centered on them and their experiences. Mm. Yeah. And there's obviously, there was a lot more people involved in this. So mm. there's a lot more stories to be told. There's a lot more to understand. Let's cross that bridge when we get to it, John. But in the meantime, I think we came up with a couple of ideas. I know that um, I know that Datgate we've deferred to the start of the federal election later on this year, John. So that's something that we're we're going to look into, whether or not Skomo shat himself at Ingadine Mackers. Oh, that's right. That's right. My God. Yep. Yep. Put yep, just just put a pin in that grenade, John. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we, we might talk a bit about the working class history of rugby league before the NRL starts. And I think was, there was going to be one thing we we're going to squeeze in before then. I think we were going to talk about streaming services. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because we've experienced the Mandalorian and now Marvel Studios is starting to put some skin in the game through WandaVision. So this year is really presenting itself as a brave new world in terms of, of how we consume stuff as geeks. So that might be something to get into as well. So, yeah, we've, we've given ourselves some goals, John, to aspire to. We don't need any silken sashes and high control concepts and EMs and, and whatnot. We set our own standards. I know we're finishing, but you said sashes and it makes me think of, were you ever a Cub Scout? Nah. Oh, okay. Maybe that's a high control group. Maybe I'm going to have some some childhood flashbacks. But I remember being a Cub Scout and you would get badges. Yeah. And, you know, you would, and obviously you'd wear your badges literally on your sleeve. And, and when I saw them with those sashes and they get the bars on it, I just thought about Cub Scouts and that sort of symbolism. But um, you might want to edit that out. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want the Cub Scout lobby coming after us. <laughs> For me, what immediately came to mind was just a, a bit more of a geeky take on the, the belt system you get when you do martial arts. Once again, another high control situation, but if you learn stuff and you do the right drills, you, you get the belt. In this instance, you get the, the cruddy looking silk sash. It's the, it's the, the cheapest looking shit. These scarves, <laughs> these sashes around their necks. Yeah. And I like actually the beginning where Sarah goes, yeah, I went to the first one and they had these sashes and I thought, yeah, no, this is not for me. <laughs> and then they get all proud of them. And I was like, oh, you're watching them getting the sashes and they're crying and clapping and you go, oh, my God, you've probably been up for like 48 hours. Yeah, counting your calories, getting woken up at 2 a.m. to go on a creepy nighttime walk. Yeah. God, counting calories. Yeah. Anyway, uh, for all the <laughs> listeners out there, watch the documentary. Just uh, to do a bit of an emotional check uh, to see if you're up for watching the documentary beforehand, though, as a friendly community warning. But otherwise, yeah, go nuts. And from here, I'll, I'll continue to try my best to do the weekly episodes. Hit the like button in the Facebook group for Thorn in Your Side. Catch us on iTunes, Spotify. Got all the podcast channels happening now. And, yeah, drop us a message. I'm happy to, to take on new ideas, interview new people, and keep this project going. But for now, so long, goodbye, and don't go too far down that the Vow rabbit hole. See ya. Ha <laughs> ha.